I've been to 20,000 feet over southeast Oklahoma in WAVE, Lithuania, and Hungary, representing the United States on the U.S. soaring team. A couple winters ago, we went to Australia to fly the Formula One Grand Prix and 555 miles and a national record on a straight-out flight from Sunflower. And I don't know, eight hours and 10 minutes, I think, is my best duration. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. My name is Chuck. I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 73. Thank you for joining us. We will be joining our guest pilot very soon. But first, some exciting things are happening. Michelle is actually here. How are you doing, Michelle? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing well. Everything going well in your part of the world? Everything is going beautifully. We have a beautiful sunny day today, and I'm excited to get out and enjoy it a little bit. Awesome. We've got some exciting things coming up here, too, on the podcast. Yes, we do. Can you tell me a little bit about those? Yeah, you can check out SkySight for free, thanks to Matthew Scudder. He's giving you a coupon code that will allow you to try it for 17 days. Just use the coupon code SOARINGTHESKY. Log into skysite.io and you will get a super interactive, detailed forecast to make the most out of your soaring day. And what else do we have going on? We're excited to also tell you that our website is getting a complete makeover. With that, we'll include a newsletter. The first 20 people that sign up for the newsletter will be getting a coupon code for 20% off of the Soaring Simulator Condor. Nice. I love Condor. I, I probably spend too much time on it, but... <laughs> it is so cool. It's great in the winter time too. Yeah, that's you know, Condor is super inexpensive as it is. I mean, for what it is, you're getting oh my goodness, you're getting so much. You can actually save money and time at the club when you're soaring, which saves you on those uh, tow bills by getting on Condor and practicing your landings or your takeoffs or your thermal or your thermaling. Um, it's great. It's it's just a great program. And yeah, that's going to give you 20% off. So that is something definitely you want to take advantage of. Jump on there as soon as you can, because you said the first 20, right? Yes, the first 20. Okay, awesome. And Chris and the Condor team have done an excellent job making it possible for you to fly on those days you can't get in the glider. So don't miss this great deal by going to our website, SoaringTheSky.com, and getting signed up for our newsletter that will also keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast and all the exciting things happening in the future. Uh, absolutely. The newsletter, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's, it's going to be great. Some exciting stuff going on. Thank you so much, Michelle, for taking a few minutes out of your day. Enjoy that day. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. Yes, you too. Bye-bye. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Tony Condon learned to soar in central Iowa while attending Iowa State University. He is the president of the Kansas Soaring Association and lives in Wichita, Kansas with his wife, Leah. 
He works as a charter pilot and is a designated pilot examiner. In 2015 and 2017, he represented the USA in the 13.5-meter World Championships. Join us now as we hear Tony Condon's story here on Soaring the Sky. Tony Condon, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you today. How are you? I'm great. Glad to be here. So where are you flying out of? Um, I live in Wichita, Kansas, and I fly with the Kansas Soaring Association um, at Sunflower Glider Port here in Kansas. Can you tell me a little bit about Sunflower? Sure. Sunflower was built in the middle of World War II as the Hutchinson Naval Air Station. The National Guard flew there through the late 60s. It was purchased by Bill Seed in the early 70s, and the Glider Club has been flying there since then. We have a 7,000-foot-long, 200-foot-wide asphalt runway. We hosted Club Class Nationals last summer in 2019, just finished right before that contest, finished construction on a new soaring center, Um, just finished an 80 by 80 hangar and a garage workshop. And it's been, we've had quite the transformation at Sunflower, I guess, in the last five years or so, especially, but, but it's a great place to, great place to soar. Wow. That's some great history. Can you tell me about the soaring center? That sounds very interesting. Let's see. It's, I think 40 by 70, if I remember right. Very, you know, big, large, open meeting area. We took a lot of inspiration from both of the Houston clubs, which several of us had visited. has a 10-foot overhang on the roof on two sides that face the runway for nice outdoor shade, um, a board meeting room, and a kind of briefing room for, you know, club meetings and for instructors to work with students, a kitchenette, and two large bathrooms. Wow, sounds like you could have a, a full weekend. We built it with the intention that we would be, you know, hosting nationals and hopefully international contests in the future. And we figured that if we had a if we had a club that was capable of doing that sort of thing for two weeks out of the year, that the other fifty weeks of local flying would be awesome for the norm for the regular club members. Oh, absolutely! Wow, that sounds very nice. What is it like to fly out of Sunflower? Well, the soaring is, you know, kind of typical Midwestern, and depending on how much rain we've had for the year, it, it you know, it can vary from some years where we've had, you know, multiple 500-kilometer-plus flights, like particularly 2011, 2012, we had a lot of very good flights. There's also extreme drought. In some years, we get on the wrong side of the dry line, and it rains a lot. But it's flatland flying. There's um, farm fields everywhere, as far as you can see. About half the fields are are wheat fields, so they're harvested by midsummer, and so it's a, a pretty benign place for soaring and for flying cross country. Oh yeah, that really opens up your options. So, can you tell me how your aviation adventure started? Sure. My first airplane ride was probably when I was about six years old. My uncle got his private license and bought a Piper Cherokee, and he'd take us up flying. I remember, you know throwing toilet paper rolls out the window and trying to cut them up with the propeller and things like that, doing zero G pushovers, which, you know, as a six or seven year old kid is great fun. Yeah. Then, um, in high school, I was working my dad's pizza place and a couple of flight instructors from the local college were there. And I decided maybe it'd be cool to be a pilot when I grew up. So I started taking flying lessons and worked through my powered ratings and then, uh, went to college at Iowa State University for an aerospace engineering degree and discovered the gliding club there in Ames, Iowa when I got down to Ames. And that's how I got started in gliding. 
So how was gliding compared to powered when you first got into that? Um, I was a bit skeptical to start with. Uh, to be honest, the initial attraction to me was the Super Cub tow plane at the club there. But once I got a ride in the Blanick, which featured a thermal that we were able to gain 600 feet in, I was totally hooked. That was the uh, you know the little taste of unpowered flight and the ability to gain altitude and and then my imagination kind of started to run wild with you know what was possible after that. So I got pretty got to work pretty fast on doing my add-on and that fall got soloed and then the following spring I guess it would have been I think March of 2004 I spent my spring break in Marfa Texas training with my instructor Matt Michael and and Bert Compton down there and did my commercial add-on down there. So where has soaring taken you since then? At the extremes, I've gone to Lithuania and Hungary, representing the United States on the U.S. soaring team. A couple winters ago, we went to Australia to fly the Formula One Grand Prix, and I've been to 20,000 feet over southeast Oklahoma and wave, and I think my and 555 miles and a national record on a straight-out flight from Sunflower and I don't know, eight hours and 10 minutes, I think, is my best duration. So those are the extremes that soaring's taken me to from a statistical standpoint. <laughs> Can you tell me about that long flight? That sounds pretty amazing. Where did You said you started at Sunflower. Or... Yeah, I had a period of my life where I was kind of underemployed conveniently. And so in the springtime, we get big cold fronts that drop through, drop through the Midwest. And usually the day after that features really unstable air and good thermals. And a strong, like, 25, 30 knot northwest wind. So so I started doing a lot of straight out downwind dash kind of flights. And the the 555 mile one was, uh, so far at least, I guess, the culmination of that. Mike Westbrook and Mitch Hudson and I and, and Keith Smith, who's a member of our club with a PW5, all flew that day. And Mike and Mitch and I headed south. Well, we all headed south. Keith landed in Mineral Wells, Texas, west of Dallas, and got his diamond distance in the PW. Mike had to work the next day in Dallas, so he kind of peeled off and landed near his house on the southwest side of Dallas. Um, Mitch and I both were, were functionally unemployed at the time, so we kept going, and we ended up landing at LaGrange, Texas, which is almost Interstate 10. It's west of Houston, and uh, we had declared Giddings, Texas as our goal before takeoff, and I managed to hit the goal and that was good for a standard class distance to a goal national record. And Mitch and I both shared the Behringer trophy that year for the longest straight line distance flight um, for the year. I think that was, it was May 4th, must've been 2017, I think. So it was a good day. Yeah. For those that don't know about the downwind dash, I don't know much about it myself. I've heard about it a couple of times, but can you explain a little bit how that works? Sure. You know, most sane glider pilots attempt to make it back to the airport that they started from at the end of the day. <laughs> it's become quote-unquote normal. The you know, Diamond Dash really is kind of a throwback task to the early days when there was the performance of the gliders was so low that there was no thought about even returning. You just went whatever which direction the wind was blowing, went as far as you could. And so at the basic level, that's what it is. You um, take off, and, and the goal is to land as far away from your takeoff site as possible. Typically, that means in the direction the wind is blown, hence the name Downwind Dash, I guess. So I started flying gliders in a Cherokee 2, a wooden home-built, which has about the same performance as a 126. And that was in central Iowa, where the soaring conditions fairly weak in general. And 
my soaring strategy at that time in my life was every flight was whatever direction the wind was blowing, that's the direction I was going. Hardly ever even attempted to make it back to where I started. Now I've moved up into higher performance gliders, but I still have great fun on straight out flights. So that included some land outs, I'm sure? Yeah, um, I developed a bit of a reputation pretty quickly when I was flying the Cherokee for landing out a lot. I think back on that, the club that I was in was pretty small, and I think that was a blessing in disguise because I didn't have anybody trying to tell me that that was, like, not normal. And so um, back then I was landing out, you know, in, like, the late 2000s or, you know, mid to late 2000s. I was probably doing about a dozen landouts a year. Um, I'm a little better now. I'm at least making it to airports more often, but I probably have somewhere around 65 off-airport landings and gliders in the last 15 years or so. Out of all those landouts, are there any that stand out? I've gotten to meet some really great people. I got to admit that. I mean, I've never had any particular trouble with a farmer. I've never landed in a field that had crops that were more than an inch or two tall. So never, I mean, I've never had any issues concerning property damage or anything. But I've gotten to meet a bunch of, of great people in western Kansas. One gal was a, I don't know, she must have been about 85 years old. She didn't answer the door when I knocked because she's a little freaked out that I just, you know, she didn't see me land. So all, just all of a sudden I showed up at her door and was knocking. She called the police, but out there it takes about, you know, 45 minutes for a deputy to get to the other side of the county. And but she was a sweet lady. She had lived on that farm for over 50 years, basically since she was 18 or 19. I guess that'd be a lot more than 50 years. Just some pretty cool people that there's no way that you would ever otherwise run across. So can you tell me in your area, any hawks, birds that stand out that you've flown with? The last day of the sports class nationals in 2019, it was a pretty weak day. We had a pretty quick task, like a 70 mile task. And I was on the, you know, we're kind of looking, we're all sort of getting to the point where we're looking for that last climb to make final glide. And I hooked a three knot thermal with a bald eagle just east of Sunflower. And I've flown at Sunflower now since, since I moved to Wichita in 2009. And I can't think of another time I'd ever actually soared with a bald eagle there in that area. And I decided this must be the one. And so I climbed with the with with that bald high enough to get final glide made it around the task and won the day so that was a pretty special memory for sure i've probably flown with bald eagles about a half a dozen times it was pretty cool and when i was in australia i got a chance on one day to soar with a wedge tail eagle which you know those wedgies are pretty notorious for being aggressive in thermals uh, a lot of hang gliders and paraglider guys have some kind of scary stories about soaring with wedge tails but but I was I was able to keep my distance far enough apparently that it didn't feel like I was encroaching on its airspace and and so that was pretty neat too. How are they compared to the bald eagle? Similar in size and uh, they're quite a bit quite a bit larger, I believe. Yeah, both very uh, obviously very distinctive birds though. I've always been impressed by balds at how uncaring they are about you know the fact that you're in their vicinity. They I passed I was flying a Cessna 421 once and I passed a bald eagle and it barely flinched. It actually, I swear it just looked over at me as I passed it and <laughs> never, you know, wow. it was sort of like, what are you doing over here? You know? Yeah. <laughs> What's maybe the coolest or strangest thing you've seen from the cockpit of a glider? I've, you know, I've, I've gotten to see a lot of really a lot of the country from, from a glider I've, and well, the world, I guess. I mean, I saw the Danube when I was flying in Hungary, I got to see the 
border between Kaliningrad and Lithuania when I was there. Flew into Northeast Poland. Flying contests around the United States. I saw, I mean, I've seen the, I saw the Gulf of Mexico when I was flying in the um, Grand Prix down in Orlando. Earlier this summer, I was out in Logan, Utah, and I mean, got to see the Grand Teton. So it's hard, hard for me to kind of pick one, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, those are some spectacular views, I'm sure, from the cockpit. Yeah. Wow. Can you tell me about the Grand Prix? Sure. Yeah, I flew first flew the Sailplane Grand Prix event that was in Orlando a couple years ago. Leo Benetti Longini, who's really been kind of a huge benefactor to me in soaring, he loaned me his JS1, and Lee and I went down there in the spring. And Grand Prix format is, you know, everybody crosses the start line simultaneously, and the first one home wins. It's a simplified form of racing, right? Just like we're used to with automobile racing. And so um, that was that trip to Orlando was my first try with the Grand Prix format. It was quite fun. Is definitely different tactics than what I was used to with conventional soaring, with conventional sailplane racing. And it was uh, and it was my first time flying with a really high performance glider like that. So um, we had a great time. I think I had a second place finish one day and. Got a few points on the board, so and I made it home every day, which is always a bonus. Nice, yeah. So, and then when we were in Australia, the they do the it's called a Formula One Grand Prix down there, where it's for club class gliders, so it's a handicapped Grand Prix, and they handicap it by adjusting the size of the of the circles at each turn point. So the lower performance gliders like a LaBelle have a larger circle, so they go a shorter distance where the Cirruses have a little smaller circle and the Jantars have an even smaller circle and have to go further. And so it still works. The handicapping is accommodated for in the distance you have to fly. So the first one home still wins. And that was, that contest especially was a great time. But the Australians know how to have a good time. So we enjoyed, we enjoyed it quite a lot. We'd like to go back if they ever let people travel back to their country again. So Yeah, that's a, that sounds like a lot of fun the way that's set up. It gets, it's really... It's much more, at least for me, I, I got a lot of more, a lot more of kind of an adrenaline rush out of it than I have out of conventional sailplane racing. Because when you're on the final glide and there's a guy right next to you, you know that if you want to get the point on him, you've got to figure out how to beat him back to the line. And and so that the, I guess in theory the same tactics really apply on a timed race, but you just don't realize it because you don't, you you can't see in real time necessarily if you're gaining or losing on on your competitors because they may have started, you know, 10 minutes before you or 10 minutes after you. So you're still thermaling, right? When you need to, obviously to stay up. Yeah, it was all thermal, um, thermal flying. I, I didn't, the both in Florida and in Leeton were thermal sites. So, but it, it seems like you'd be really thinking about it when you're in the thermal, like how much altitude do I really need? Can I just take off? Right. Yeah. You definitely did not want to stay any longer than you had to. Especially if you're with some other gliders, you knew that, you know, if you could, if you could be the first one to leave and manage to bump home and make it work, you could beat them. So lots of risk reward thinking going on for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, maybe getting a little extra altitude would put you in a position to be able to, you know, to push a little faster and maybe push the guy ahead of you too low so that he'd have to stop and climb again and you wouldn't. So yeah, it was, it was really interesting. We spent a lot of time at the beginning of the contest, or at least I did, trying to figure out what everybody else's red line speed was. 
<laughs> but anyways, I flew a DG one hundred down there, and it was the whole experience was just great. We had a we had a great time. So what was your red line in the DG? It was like one hundred and fifty knots, which is pretty fast for those gliders. I think the Jantar is the only one that might be a little faster. But at at, at that kind of speed on the DG one hundred, the glide ratio is probably like six to one. It's terrible, and <laughs> right <laughs> the. It has a lot of washout in the wingtips, and so at that speed, the wingtips are actually bending down because of the twist in the wing, and it just plummets out of the sky. But Sounds like something I definitely would want to check out as an observer, of course, for, for now. <laughs> it was pretty well, and the cool. Th- the other cool thing about that was um, they, have, they have a really robust cell system in Australia um, just because it's so remote outside of the cities, and the gliding federation there has a has a pretty good system of onboard trackers that we used. Well, and actually, I should I kind of I'll let me walk that back a little bit. The contest organizer itself actually developed a tracking box that they called the SkyMate, and it was used for um, real time tracking and real time scoring. So it actually transmitted like a essentially it transmitted an IGC file in real time. It had a little screen on it that would read out your altitude and your speed, which the starting the start was constrained by max altitude and maximum ground speed. So that was how you confirmed that you had met those requirements. And then as soon as you've crossed the finish line, you were scored, <laughs> and including any start penalties or finish penalties. So it was pretty amazing. I, I would cross the finish line and land and... Before Leah got there to tow me back to the grid, I would know what place I had finished in and what the standings were. And everybody back home could watch the race in essentially in real time. So, Oh, they could just follow you. Right. It was really, they did a really good job of that for that competition. A real Grand Prix, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just heard about the Grand Prix just not too long ago and very cool that you got to actually experience that. Any any plans for doing more of those in the future? Well, before COVID nineteen, we were going. We we're planning to go back next winter, <laughs> but I have a pretty strong feeling that's not going to happen. I know they certainly are very limited on traveling outside of the country, so I'm pretty confident. I feel fairly confident at the moment that it's going to be almost completely unlikely that we're able to travel down there over the new year. But, well, hopefully next year. Yep, that's right. There's always next year. So. So have you ever had any near misses? And if so, can you tell me what you learned from that? I mean, I've had, you know, busy thermals where uh, people, you know, I would say mild, mildly being cut off or, or that kind of thing. Nothing pops to mind. So either I haven't had anything too bad or I've repressed the memory yeah. of, you know, a truly scary sort of near miss situation. I guess I was I, the world championships. I flew were in the thirteen and a half meter class, which was a pretty small class, like fifteen gliders. So I didn't get that experience. You know, you read a lot and you hear a lot of stories about people who went to the world championships and you hear about these terrifying, huge thermals, right, with these big gaggles and stuff. And that was not my experience because we could put the whole contest in one thermal and it was manageable. So I think the big, probably the biggest contest I've flown was. Sports class nationals in Uvalde in 2016, I think. There's about 40, 45 gliders there, but it was fun. There's like this aura and legend of Uvalde weather. And of course, just like anywhere, I mean, 
at our home club, we always remember the the epic, the best soaring days we ever had. And it's easy to kind of forget about the so-so days, but it was, it was a good contest. It, we never had any, I don't think we ever had truly classic Uvalde conditions. Um, you read, you hear a lot about, you know, flying straight for a hundred miles without having to circle and things like that down there. And, but we had some good weather and then um, the end of the contest actually got rained out, which was of course a bummer. I was flying the silent two electro that year and actually kind of, from a well, from my own like personal positive mental attitude standpoint, and I sort of saved that contest for me. It was raining in Uvalde when we left. We drove north to where the sun was shining, put the glider together, and launched. <laughs> and then I flew 400 miles back to Southwest Kansas, so I kind of got a bonus flight out of that contest, which made up for some of the disappointment for having the contest end early. It was nice, and I was lucky that I had the ability to do it since I was borrowing a self-launching electric motor glider. How was the self-launcher? Um, it was good. The Electro is what I flew in both world championships. And, you know, the the Silent 2 is a pretty lightweight glider. So with the regular Fez installation, it takes off in about six or 700 feet and climbs around 400 feet per minute. So, Oh, nice. It does really well pretty clever little system you you lose a little bit of performance probably with having the propeller blades hanging out but you flip one switch and turn a knob and you have power and it starts you know and you start flying away so so that one stays out right it doesn't doesn't tuck in yeah it's mounted it's electric motor in the nose and so it's it's like always ready there's no there's nothing to deploy there's no um no boom or anything to to deploy out of the back of the back of the glider like a typical piston motor glider right nice hi it's natalie fly girl kelly and fly Alyssa. we are female pilots aviation lovers and hosts of the podcast cockpits and cocktails we use this podcast as a way of sharing our journeys in aviation and allowing other females in aviation to share their amazing inspiring stories as well Please give us a listen and join us for this fun, informative podcast with adventure and humor weaved in. Blue skies. Cheers. We will get right back to our guests, but right now our soaring safety segment with Walt Rogers. Prepare yourself for every season. Offer yourself your own flight instruction and simulator training. I think using Condor and uh, uh, to get yourself back in the cockpit is, is a really good way to get yourself started. Of course, the most important thing is getting your, your butt back in the glider seat and actually doing the flying, setting goals and making sure that you can do safe patterns. Those sort of things, I think, are important for uh, the safety aspects. Um, I remember number of years ago, there were uh, back-in-the-saddle uh, get-togethers, or these are seminars here in Region 12, which is Southern California, where we would go over what's important for safety and for enjoyment of soaring. And I remember Jim Payne speaking at one of these events saying, when something else goes wrong and you're in the cockpit, wind your watch. Uh, what? What are you talking about? Well, what he means is, don't make any snap decisions. If something's unusual in your flight situation, take a pause, a deep breath, 
and assess the situation so that you don't make it worse. That I think is important. Taking your situational awareness and make sure you're not zeroed in or focused with tunnel vision. To hear more from weather guru Walt Rogers, you can check out episode 61. Now back to our guest. You're a DPE, I understand. Is that correct? Yeah, I just I just got designated last fall. So I've been a DPE now for about nine months. And I'm designated. I can do um, private, commercial, and flight instructor glider check rides. And then I'm also designated in single and multi-engine airplanes as well. So... How has that been? That that must be a totally different experience being a DP than. Yeah, it it has been. I've I've spent I spent a lot of time in my flying career flight instructing in airplanes and gliders, and probably have about twenty five hundred hours of dual given. I signed a lot of students off for check rides, but I felt like becoming a DPE was like going back to school, and it was like kindergarten all over again in some ways. You know, kind of a lot of. A lot of responsibility, I guess, definitely involved with, you know, your sort of the, the, you know, you are the final check on, yes, this instructor did his job right. And this student is competent enough to carry passengers or to, you know, to be a flight instructor or whatever. And so I've spent a lot more time in the last year than I ever imagined I ever would, you know, reading the far aim and talking to the local FAA office and, but it's been it's been really rewarding. It's really satisfying to, you know, to be able to hand somebody their pilot certificate. It's pretty cool to be part of that. So, yeah, lots of smiles, right? Yeah, it is. Well, yes, but well, when they pass, there is. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say there's probably a f- couple frowns in there, but yeah, that that just means they have to come back later and try again. Yeah, I originally got it. I originally applied to be a DPE just to make sure that our that our glider club had continuity Our, you know, like many places, our local DPE is, is, has been doing it for a long time and he's pretty old. And he and I had chatted about getting my name in the hat so that whenever he was ready to retire, we would have somebody to cover it. And so it started from that. And then it ended up, I, obviously I do a lot more airplane check rides than I do glider check rides. But it's, it's kind of spun a little bit out of control, but, it's been quite the ride so far. It still kind of amazes me that soaring is is not more popular in this country anyway than than in other areas because it's just it's so cool. And had friends that flew power and didn't even know anything about soaring. But that kind of brings me to a, a question. And you've done a lot. You've stepped up, and now you're a DPE. So thank you for that because we do need to keep this going and in order to do that it's going to take people like you to, to step up and keep, keep it moving but what other things in your club are they doing for the sport of soaring well we've had let's see last year we hosted our our airport has a huge old huge ramp right i mean it's a world war ii training base um a local group started a, a car show that they held out at the airport had like oh, 150 or 175 show cars out there last year. Probably three or 400 people from Hutchinson and Wichita came out to see the show and spend all day at the airport. And, you know, it was kind of a neat way to sort of get the public at least out there to be aware that we're there. Uh, we gave quite a few glider rides, of course. A couple members of our club have 
you know, been for the last 20 or 30 years have constantly been um, doing static displays at local school events and, uh, you know, uh, airport fly-ins and things like that to promote, promote the club. We've um, host started, we've kind of had a campaign in the last five years of hosting regional contests, which led up to the nationals last year, the club class nationals. And then we have uh, 126 championships next year, um, standard and 20 meter nationals the following year in 2022. And then um, we're planning to host the Pan American gliding championships either in 2023 or 2024, depending on what they do with the calendar. So, wow, you have a lot of stuff. So we're trying to, you know, yeah, we have kind of having regular events. I, before we started this kind of big campaign of construction and improvement at the airport on my, my philosophy with our, with the club and with the board was that um, if they are coming, we will build it. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, here's the deal. I'm bidding for the nationals. We better make sure this airport is in shape to host the nationals. And, and, and our club members have been awesome about stepping up and, and, and putting the work in that needs to be done. We've got it. I've got a really great group of guys and gals with varying, you know, ex- areas of expertise and specialties, and and it's it's been really, really a satisfying thing in the last few years. So we've got a couple guys who are really involved with Civil Air Patrol locally, who in the last couple of years really revived the glider program for the Kansas Civil Air Patrol wing. So several weekends this, every summer they're doing orientation rides for cadets. I think they were the second busiest O-Ride state in the in the country last year is what they told me. Oh wow, impressive. Nice. Yeah. And so we're, you know, we've just been trying to do just like just trying to do as much as we can, I guess. So as much as we have manpower and willpower for, for sure. Well it sounds like you have a great facility there and you have a great group of people so it sounds like you've already done big things and it sounds like a lot of cool stuff in the future for sure looking forward to it trying to just keep on a path of continuous improvement <laughs> so that's right do you have a mentor in your gliding and soaring career so far that you think most fondly of yeah well my my original flight instructor met michael in names iowa for sure i mean he taught me how to soar just and got me started in the sport and really, really guided me in the early days, especially of getting started in cross country and training and landing out and all the little details of preparedness and weather and crewing and, and, uh, and really became and still is basically my best friend. So, so Matt definitely stands out for sure, but we've all had, we've all had a lot of great mentors along the way. So if you had some advice to give somebody asked you, Hey, how can I be a better and safer pilot, especially as a DPE? What would you say to them? Keep your airspeed up and coordinate your turns is a good start. (laughs) It's a trite saying, but any kind of flying involves risk, right? So you need to be educated and knowledgeable. And with that, be able, you know, develop the ability to recognize how the decisions you're making are going to affect the next five or 10 minutes of your life and use that knowledge to, you know, make the right choices. So 
you know, a lot of times it's a heck of a lot faster to just land back on the runway and take that second toe than it's going to be to try to scratch out from a low altitude. In reality, I think, you know, we all, we all really enjoy soaring, obviously. That's, you know, that's why we spend all of our free time thinking about it and working on it. And, you know, that's why you're doing this podcast and we all kind of find our, find our little corner of the sport where we can specialize. And, but in reality, there's a lot more important things in life than flying a glider on the weekend. So we need to make sure that, that we uh, spend our weekends wisely and have, and make sure that we keep the sport fun. Absolutely. Some great advice. Are there any people in your local club that you want to give a shout out to, or maybe some other people that aren't in your club that you'd like to give a shout out to? Well, I've had, I mean, I've had a lot of, I've developed a lot of really wonderful friendships in the sport. Um, People all around the country and all around the world who've helped me out one way or the other. In our, our club, we've got, we've had a really good class, so to speak, of, of young people lately. Two that come to mind, um, Camden Schneider and Colton Coughlin, who are both uh, around 16. Um, Colton passed his private check ride last fall, right after his 16th birthday. He's got a 126 and made his first land out in that last month. And Camden, I think, is almost 16 and will be taking his check ride soon. So these are kids who've been out, out at the club for the last couple weekend or a couple years and. Um, ran the line at the nationals and it's been really fun to fun to fly with them and learn teach them and and learn from them as well so it's been fun i'm when i started off when i got into soaring i was 19 or 20 years old and i was kind of you know one of the young kids now i'm 35 and i'm starting to feel like i'm transitioning into being one of the old guys so (laughs) it's, it's fun for me to you know to have some kids around to keep me on my toes, I guess. So, and those are, those two guys are, are, are pretty good ones. So it's good to see those younger people excited about soaring, you know? Yeah. And they're not out there cause their parents want them to, you know, parents couldn't find any other extracurricular they're interested in or anything like that. They just, they really want to fly and they're, they're into it and, and they're enjoying themselves and they're having a good time. So. Absolutely. Tony, is there anything you wanted to add before we wrap it up? Mm-hmm. Nothing I can think of. I appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure. It's been a good chatting. Thank you, Tony, for joining us here on Soaring the Sky. And now for our Soaring Tips and Techniques segment, flight instructor from Minnesota Soaring, it's Stephen Nesser. He'll talk with us about slipping to land. Short final. We're only maybe a quarter of a mile from the end of the runway, 1,000 feet AGL. So there's two ways. One is the S-turn. So imagine you do a... 60 degree angle of bank, full air brakes, turn left, right, left, right. Never just constantly asking left, left, right, left, right. Always keeping the airport in sight. Because of that precipitous angle of bank, because of the air brakes are fully out, we're coming down at about 500, 600 foot a minute. And and all I need to do is just fly for, for a, a minute and a half and I'm, I'm ready to level off and, and, and finish the landing just in a, in a normal attitude with a half air brakes out. The other way is just a powerful uh, slip. It almost feels like the, it isn't, but all, probably I'm in a 60 to 70 degree uh, wings down situation in, in order to maximize the thing. My caution to uh, your listeners, 
do not do this without an experienced flight instructor in the, in the ship the first time you're doing either one of these maneuvers. These are maneuvers that require training, especially when you're that low to, to the earth. Thank you, Stephen. We appreciate hearing from you and that advice. And like Stephen said, flight training, highly emphasize that. Make sure you go over everything with your instructor before you attempt anything like that. Thank you for joining us for another episode here on Soaring the Sky and hearing all the great advice from pilots all over the globe. Don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. Of course, it helps the podcast and the soaring community grow. If you are interested in soaring and you haven't done it yet, make sure you check out where your local soaring club is. You can find that out by going to ssa.org and get your first glider flight. Thank you to everyone that submitted your picks and entered our first contest. Congratulations to Todd, who flies near Lake Keep at Australia. He is our winner. Paul Remdy of Cumulus Soaring will be sending him that Condor keypad to enhance his flight simulator experience. We hope you enjoyed this episode and look forward to you joining us again next time. So stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at SoaringTheSky.com or you can send us a note on the website SoaringTheSky.com Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.